If you're a Christian, where do you anticipate spending your eternity, and in what form? Do you think that your soul is going to go to heaven when you die and there remain forever? If you do, stick around. On this inaugural episode of The Theapologetics Show, we discuss the resurrection of the dead. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Today we're going to talk about resurrection, um, and uh, I've got a debate coming up that I'll tell you about, and I'll be presenting my opening statement that I will be presenting in that debate. We'll get to all of that in a minute, but there will be some of you watching this episode either live as it streams or um, uh, or, or, or watching it after, after the stream is over and after it's been archived in the channel. By the way, forgive me for my nervousness. I've been doing Rethinking Hell Live, which is something I'll tell you about in a moment, for so long that switching gears and, and doing things a bit differently is uh, not coming naturally to me. So. Uh, It'll take me some time to get into the swing of things. But anyway, um, oh yeah, so I'll be talking about the resurrection in a minute. But because there will be some of you watching this live or uh, or um, in the channel after it's been uploaded there um, that will not be familiar with me, I figured I might spend a little bit of time in this inaugural episode of The Apologetics telling you a little bit about The Apologetics and about myself uh, before we start talking about the topic of resurrection. Uh, and by the way, I am trying to keep an eye on the live YouTube chat. Um, Slam RN, that's my friend Susan, she is in the chat. And um, thank you for watching, Susan, I appreciate it. Also, thanks to my friend Peter, fellow uh, contributor at Rethinking Hell, um, who is in the live chat as well. And to everybody else watching, thanks for joining me, I really appreciate it. So let me tell you a little bit about um, the apologetics to begin with, okay? The apologetics is, um, a word that I put together a number of years ago, uh, a combination of the words theology and apologetics. So you take the word theology and you take off the T-H-E-O, and then you take the A off of the word apologetics, so apologetics, and you slap that at the end of theo and you get theapologetics. And that is the explanation behind the logo as well that you can see down in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen, because uh, the word theology in English comes from the Greek word theos, um, which is the word translated God in most of the New Testament. Um, so here you can see that the Greek character at the beginning of the word theos is the Greek theta. All right, and it looks, especially in the capital, uh, this is a lowercase theta, but especially in the capital theta, it's, it's rounded and then it's got that line in the middle. Um, the word apologetics in English comes from the Greek word apologia, which is a which is famous for being a word here in 1 Peter 3.15. Here it's translated defense, uh, but it's uh, it appears in other um, texts where it's translated slightly differently as well. Um, and as you can see, the word apologia begins with the Greek letter alpha. 
uh, lowercase. Uh, well, obviously, here. So the logo for the apologetics, in case you didn't already know, um, is a large theta. And in the middle of the theta is a lowercase alpha, um, sort of merged with the theta. So it's sort of a representation of the theme of the show, which is uh, theology and apologetics. Those are the main issues uh, that I want to be covering over the course of this show. Um, so hopefully that gives you a little bit of idea. Basically, throughout the show, in, in, in uh, each episode of the show, we'll be discussing various issues related to Christian theology and apologetics, uh, sometimes very closely related to theology and apologetics. In other cases, maybe not so much. For example, if we talk politics uh, or social issues, they may not be directly related to theology, but there will be um, a loose connection there that will make it uh, appropriate for the show as well. So those are the kinds of things that we're going to be talking about uh, in, you know, in, in episodes of The Apologetics. Now, um, the, in, for those of you who aren't already aware, um, one of the reasons why I'm starting this show up again now, the, the day before a debate that I'm going to be telling you about in a moment, which is tomorrow on the topic of resurrection, is because this show that you're watching now is, in a sense, a resurrection of sorts. Because this used to be, or I used to host a podcast uh, called The Apologetics. Um, I've just put it up on the screen there, and you can see, um, you know, there's that logo, and there's the name of it and stuff. And, and you can see I got all the way up to 127 episodes. Um, if you, I, I should have a drop down here on the website. This is just theapologetics.com, by the way, but I haven't done anything with it for years. And uh, here in the archives drop down, you can see. Why am I getting a knock on my door? Miles, I'm, on, I'm doing my show. I know, but when you're done, um, do you want to play something? Okay, but I'm in the middle of a show, all right? Were you just trying to get on the camera? No. All right, close my door. That was my six-year-old son, Miles, who's never done that until today, so I'm not... I suspect he just wanted to get on camera. Anyway, um, in this archives drop-down, you can see that the latest shows were in August of 2016. <laughs> uh, you guys are laughing at Miles coming in here. That's adorable. Um, but it actually started out, so that was four years ago, but it started out back in July of 2010, episode one, which, by the way, was on uh, the topic of the resurrection. So there's a whole lot of sort of um, pieces that come together to make this an appropriate day uh, to re to resurrect the apologetics, no longer as a pre-recorded podcast, but as a um, bi-weekly YouTube live stream. So if you want to go back and listen to The Apologetics, you can do so. <laughs> yeah, my wife is in the YouTube chat. Hi, Star. Um, yeah, I figured he probably did that intentionally, knowing that, I was, um, that I'd gone live. But anyway, um, it's not nothing to be apologetic for. Uh, apologetic, there's the word again. Uh, okay, so if you want to check out the The Apologetics podcast and go listen to the archive, please do so. It's at theapologetics.com. Um, I will start a new feed that has the audio uh, recordings of these YouTube episodes. But for the time being, you can go back and listen to the archive at theapologetics.com. So that's The Apologetics, and, and it's a resurrection of sorts because it was a pre-recorded podcast that sort of died four years ago, and now I'm bringing it back to life. 
The Apologetics is also, I'm proud to say, a member of the Trinity Commission uh, podcasting ne network. You can find that if you just do a Facebook search for Trinity Commission, and you'll see that it's the um, it, it's a network of podcasts or YouTube streams, a variety of different kinds of shows that includes Trinity Radio, uh, the Bible Brodown, Soteriology 101. By the way, Soteriology 101 is the um, show hosted by my friend Leighton Flowers, and The Narrow Path, which is hosted by Steve Gregg. Um, Braxton Hunter is the main host of Trinity Radio. Uh, you may, if you go to youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter or just search for Trinity Radio, you'll find his channel here. Um, and you can even see me in their latest, in their most recent episode. Uh, I joined Braxton to respond to um, uh, an episode by a, an atheist named Morg, or who calls himself Morg. Um, so check that out if you want to um, hear me and Braxton do some apologetics in response to that video. By the way, also, um, I have, uh, speaking of Braxton Hunter, he just this morning, um, or not, well, it wasn't this morning. It was just this afternoon. Recorded an episode of the Unbelievable Radio program, uh, debating Dan Barker, atheist Dan Barker, on free will. Um, Unbelievable is the radio show hosted by Justin Brierley, um, which I've had the honor of being on a few times. As some of you may have heard this debate between Al Mohler, who's on the left here, and myself on the right side of the screen um, from several years ago, five or six years ago. Um, a lot of people have heard that debate and uh, know me from that. But be looking on the uh, be on the lookout for an upcoming episode of Unbelievable, in which Braxton Hunter uh, is debating Dan Barker. Uh, now let me tell you a little bit about myself. So uh, yeah, just to reiterate, the apologetics. This show is a resurrection of a podcast I used to do. The show is now a member of this Trinity Commission that I'd encourage you to check out and listen to the um, member shows, which include Trinity Radio, Soteriology 101, and uh, the Bible Brodown and. Uh, the narrow path. And I also think that um, it's possible that with the Trinity Seminary recently hiring Tim Stratton uh, of Freethinking Ministries, it may be that that show becomes a part of the Trinity Network as well. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but that's enough about the Theapologetics show and what you can expect and, and what the history of the show. Yes, uh, Susan asks in the chat, what was I debating Al Mohler on? And yeah, that was the nature of hell. And that leads nicely into a little bit of discussion about who I am. Um, if So I am a contributor to and, and something of a public face of a ministry called Rethinking Hell, which you can find right here at RethinkingHell.com. We have a blog and we've got a podcast. And um, basically, we are conservative evangelicals committed to the uh, inspiration of Scripture and its authority. Uh, I personally affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. And uh, all of us, were at one point in time in our Christian walks, believed in the traditional view of hell as eternal torment, uh, but we have become convinced that the Bible instead teaches what is sometimes called annihilationism, but we prefer to call conditional immortality. Um, so if you want to learn more about that topic, we'll be discussing it in some episodes of this show, not this one. Uh, but in the meantime, you can go to RethinkingHell.com and check out the blog and the podcast there. The podcast is also available in iTunes. Just do a search for Rethinking Hell and you should find it no problem. Um, we also have a bi-weekly live stream. Up until a couple of weeks ago, it was weekly, every Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. But now we're going to bi-weekly, and it's because of the launch of the show you're watching right now. Um, so uh, beginning today, every other Monday will be an episode of this show, The Apologetics, at Mondays at 6 p.m. Pacific. And then on alternating Mondays at 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific will be Rethinking Hell Live. And you can watch that live or find the past 
past episodes by just going to youtube.com slash rethinking hell rethinking hell also has a um annual conference that we've been doing ever since 2014 uh with the the corona uh virus right now um there is a bit of an open question as to whether we will continue to have the conference that we'd planned for this year this year uh 2020 but for the time being we are still planning on holding it and this year it's going to be in my neck of the woods in uh near seattle washington um so it's rethinking hell conference 2020 in seattle uh, uh, don't be confused by Federal Way. That's sort of a suburb of Seattle. That's where it will be hosted. And you can find more details out at RethinkingHellConference.com. Um, our conference this year is going to be on the relationship between apologetics and the problem of hell. And we're going to have some great speakers, including um, Dr. Paul Copan, Dr. Clay Jones, who is formerly of Biola University, uh, Tim Barnett, who is one of the staff at Stand to Reason Ministries, which is uh, um, hosted by, or, or the president of it is Greg Kokel, and then uh, least of all, myself. And we'll have some breakout speakers, and at least at this point, we are still planning on having the conference. We don't think we'll have to cancel it. Uh, we think that all that will have to happen is that you'll have to wear masks. Um, if you can't make it out to the Seattle area, we do also have a registration option uh, for online uh, online streaming for a fraction of the cost. So you'll be able to watch the plenary and some of the breakout sessions live if you purchase an online streaming registration for just five bucks. But if you can make it out, um, we think that you'll really enjoy your time, you'll be edified. Um, and I should mention, just for those of you who uh, are curious, I am the only one of the four plenary speakers who is a conditionalist or annihilationist. The other three are, to various degrees, believers in the doctrine of eternal torment. So um, be looking forward to that, and, and I hope you'll go to RethinkingHellConference.com, check it out, and, and possibly register for either an in-person or online entry. Now, um, because I'm talking about myself, and because I've just mentioned Seattle, I do want to share something a little bit personal, um, not related to theology and apologetics, but related to my personal interests. And that's another resurrection of sorts, namely the resurrection of the Seattle NHL hockey team. We have not had one in quite a number of years. And recently, the, uh, the, the Seattle NHL team committee that's been working on getting a Seattle team ready to start playing in the NHL uh, introduced uh, or, or, or shared a video introducing um, or, or teasing the new Seattle team, and I thought I might share that with you, so uh, check it out.
So I'm really looking forward to uh, the debut of the Seattle Kraken. I played hockey um, starting in uh, middle school, in, in uh, junior high, and then in, and then through high school and a little bit beyond. Um, and at the time, and this hadn't been the case for years, the Seattle didn't have a uh, a team, an NHL team. Um, and I'm extremely excited to see uh, the Seattle team debut. I think they're going to do so in either the 2020-2021 season or the 21-22 season. Can't remember which. Star Welters, uh, my friend Skylar in the chat, he might he might know. Um, maybe he'll say in the chat when which season the Seattle Kraken are going to debut. Um, so that's just a way of saying of getting to play a cool video that, that I'm really gets me jazzed, um, and also to let you know that I'm I'm into hockey. All right, a uh, little bit more about me. I am also, uh, as of fairly recently, an adjunct professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Um, this is the seminary of which Braxton Hunter, whom I mentioned a few minutes ago, is the president, Jonathan Pritchett, uh, who co-hosts Trinity Radio with Braxton. He is the vice president for academics at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Um, the website is trinitysem.edu. S-E-M is uh, short for seminary. trinitysem.edu. And if you are looking for a higher Christian education but don't have the uh, money and time to be able to do a brick-and-mortar institution um, higher education, education or to um, either the time or the money to be able to afford something like that, consider trinitysem.edu. It's extremely affordable and you'll get to learn from professors like Braxton Hunter, Jonathan Pritchett, uh, Leighton Flowers, Steve Gregg, Tim Stratton, and me among many others. Um, so hope that you'll familiarize yourself with Trinity Seminary. Um, I also have some journal articles published. I recently graduated from Fuller Seminary with my Master of Arts in Theology. I'll say a word or two about that here in a moment. Um, and so because of that, my academia.edu profile is fuller.academia.edu slash Christopher Date. And there you will find some, uh, some uh, journal articles that I've gotten published among some other things um, on the topic of hell and some other topics like the Pauline authorship of the pastoral epistles. Uh, let me say, let me speak about Fuller here for a moment, just because I'm trying to introduce myself to viewers. I got my undergrad um, in 2017 from Liberty University. I am extremely conservative. I'm borderline fundamentalist, and Liberty University very much fit my ethos for the most part. Uh, there are some differences. I'm a Calvinist, for example, and Liberty is by and large a non-Calvinist institution. Uh, I'm obviously, as we've already mentioned, an annihilationist or conditionalist, whereas the uh, most of the professors, or all of the professors possibly at Liberty, um, will profess the doctrine of eternal torment. So there are couple of differences, but in terms of a conservative evangelical ethos, I very much share that ethos with them. Uh, Skylar clarified, they, the Kraken will begin in the 2021-2022 season, so I've got to wait a little bit longer than I would have liked, but nevertheless, it, it's pretty exciting. Um, now, the reason why I went to Fuller is not because I became any less conservative over the years. Uh, the reason I started my Fuller Masters in 2017, the summer after I graduated from Liberty, is because I didn't want to do my Masters in an echo chamber, somewhere where I um, already believed everything and was already familiar with everything I was being taught. I wanted to go somewhere where I'd be stretched and challenged, but at an institution uh, that still is broadly evangelical and committed to the authority of Scripture. Fuller fit the bill in my 
thinking, and they also, I think, lend a bit of uh, prestige to my CV, um, which leads to another thing worth mentioning. I, uh, I am a software engineer full time, but my dream one day in the not too terribly distant future, maybe another five, six, seven years, I'd love to start teaching full time Bible and theology, which uh, requires that I've got a doctorate in order to teach at the grad level um, uh, at some point in the future. So, um, what was the point of that? Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm trying to build a, an impressive CV and not just acquire a master's education. And so when I weighed my various options, Fuller seemed like the perfect school at which to start building an impressive CV um, and, and go to a school at which I would have my views challenged. Indeed, a lot of the faculty and student body at Fuller is very far to my left, but some of them are not. Um, I had very liberal Old Testament professors in particular who uh, think that the Old Old Testament is largely non-historical. Uh, but then I also had a lot of very conservative New Testament professors, including some who uh, believed in the Pauline authorship of the pastoral epistles, which for those of you who, uh, as some of you will know, is the the portion of the New Testament that is the most obviously non-Pauline in the mind of people who think that Paul didn't write all of the epistles in the New Testament. So the faculty and the student body at Fuller are very diverse. Um, we conservatives tend to think that Fuller is very far to our left, but liberals tend to think that Fuller is too far to their right. Uh, and so I think it was a good fit for that. And then, like I said, they are still committed to a broadly evangelical ethos. And as such, I decided to go to Fuller and I don't have any regrets. And um, if anything, I'm more conservative than when I began my degree at Fuller. So um, you don't have to worry about that. My hope is to go on to do an Old Testament doctorate uh, at Cambridge is the is my first choice, but some other old test, uh, some other UK doctorate um, is something I'd like to do if I can't get into Cambridge. But anyway, so that's my academia profile. And then one last thing I'll share about myself is that I do have a few published books. Um, if you go to amazon.com slash author slash Chris Date, you will find um, the books that I've gotten published so far. These first two um, are books that I've published with Rethinking Hell, which is a ministry I mentioned earlier, and it's on the topic of hell and conditional immortality. Rethinking Hell is a, um, a reader. It's a collection of previously published material, including material by by such authors as John Stott, Clark Pinnock, John Wenham, and others. And then A Consuming Passion is a, about a mix of half, a, half of it is a collection of uh, presentations that were delivered at the very first Rethinking Hell conference in 2014. And then the other half of the contributions were our brand new contributions from a variety of other authors, uh, including myself. Um, so highly recommend those books, but if you're not interested in getting a book on hell and on uh, conditional immortality and annihilationism, then you might be interested in the other books I've gotten published so far. These are both two views debate books. Um, the first is a debate book in which I defend Calvinism um, against a, uh, what I think would self-identify as an Arminian co-author. Um, it's called Does God Predetermine the Eternal Destiny of Every Individual Human Being? I am affirming that God does and my opponent is denying that God does. Um, and then finally, this most recent book that I've gotten published is a two views debate book between me and Unitarian Dale Tuggy, a Unitarian philosopher that is um, causing a lot of waves over the past few years um, and has been having a lot of success uh, in convincing Christians that the Bible doesn't teach the doctrine of the Trinity or the deity of Christ. I think he's wrong about that, and so I take him to task in that two views debate book, and I would encourage you to check that out as well. 
Um, so I guess that's enough about me. Um, maybe if I am able to catch any questions that come up in the YouTube chat, I will uh, I will try to answer those questions as I see them. But let me shift gears now, having told you about the apologetics and having told you something about myself, both of which you'll continue to learn more of, I suppose, over the course of, uh, of this show, uh, this show's future history. Now let me shift gears to the topic of uh, at hand today. And, and in so doing, I will um, tell you a little bit about why I got into Christian podcasting in the first place. Um, did I say, oh, yes, so my wife says I also have a few published children. That's a pretty big part of who I am. That's true. I, I was going to talk about that, babe, but I didn't know if it would be appropriate to share photos. And uh, I didn't. I thought it would be a little bit weird to just talk about you guys. So I'll tell you what, I'll talk about you guys now. And then in next episode, I'll show some photos if all the kids are okay with that. Um, I've been married for 20 years as of May 27th of this year. Uh, my wife and I were both married as atheists back in uh, 2000. 2020, and then in 2021, I became a Christian, and then my wife did as well a few years later. My wife's name is Star, which is kind of funny because now her name is Star Date. Um, and if you are a fan of Star Trek, you'll recognize the phrase Star Date and know why we sometimes catch some uh, or get some weird looks when we tell people my wife's name. Um, we have four sons ranging in age from six at our youngest you just saw him uh, about 15 minutes ago almost um actually no more like 20 minutes ago his name is miles uh and then they're separated by about every uh four years so next oldest is uh just recently turned 11 his name is sawyer uh next oldest is 15 his name is logan and our oldest child is 19 and his name is brandon so married to Star for 20 years and father to Brandon, Logan, Sawyer, and Miles. Uh, and we live in the Pacific Northwest, which is why I just played you the Seattle, um, the Seattle Kraken thing. Um, so hopefully, <laughs> and yes, Susan, poor Star, four boys. One of the reasons, Star, Star might not admit this, but at least this is the case from my perspective. One of the reasons that we had four kids uh, is because um, we wanted to have a girl after we had our first son. Um, that didn't turn out to be in the cards. Uh, so, you know, we, we and, and every one of our births, hopefully, my, hopefully you don't mind me saying this, Star, uh, each of our deliveries was by uh, cesarean section. And when we were in the waiting room to go in for our fourth cesarean, uh, the doctor said, you just can't do this anymore. It's not, it's, it's going to be risking your life. And so um, four is it. We won't get, have any more, no daughters, but that's okay because um, Lord willing, maybe we'll be able to have granddaughters one day. Does that satisfy you, Star? Hopefully now you're comfortable that I've talked about the most important thing besides God and Christ in my life. Um, and I waited to last, so, you know, to save the best for last. Um, so hopefully that saves me a little bit of face. So, um, yeah, uh, Susan, adopting a girl is something I don't know that we may or may not do. We'll, we'll see if, um, if that's in the cards. But as, as it is, having four kids is, is quite a handful anyway. Okay, so uh, I mentioned, so now I'm going to start talking about resurrection. I mentioned that 20 years ago when my wife and I were married, 
uh, we were both atheists, and I became a Christian in 2000. Sorry, not 2020, 2000. Did I say we got married in 2020? That's we got married in 2000, 20 years ago, uh, and then in 2001 I became a Christian. That's more accurate. I can't believe I stumbled over that. But anyway. Um, over those first several years when I was a Christian, I developed a real passion for theology and for apologetics. Um, and uh, over the years, something that started to stand out, uh, stand out to me some, and something that started to concern me is that uh, it seemed to me as if most of my fellow Christians, generally speaking, by and large, in the pews, um, they, their hope, their future hope for eternal bliss was located in uh, heaven where they would go immediately after death. Um, but that's not what the Bible uh, has Christians placing their future hope in. Uh, according to scripture, we may or may not, depending upon whether you what you believe to be the nature of human beings, we may have souls that go to heaven immediately when we die and enjoy the presence of God, but that's still in and of itself a temporary state. Um, in fact, theologians call it the intermediate state, the state of being dead and possibly disembodied, um, awaiting what is our future hope as Christians, the, the, our ultimate hope, which is in resurrection from the dead. Um, not just resurrection from the dead, as in, you know, back into these frail and, and uh, fallen bodies that we have now, thing, you know, riddled with morbid obesity because of the terrible choices that I've made over the years and stuff like that. Um, but in uh, perfected, glorified bodies that no longer suffer and no longer age and fall apart and all these things. And, uh, and, and from as far back as the earliest centuries of the church, this is what Christians place their ultimate hope in, not in where they would go immediately upon death. And yet it occurred to me over these years, beginning in 2001, that uh, as, as soon as I learned that that's what the Bible teaches, this resurrection of the dead, which theologians call the general resurrection to distinguish it from Christ's resurrection, um, as soon as I discovered that that's what the Bible teaches, I started to see that many of my fellow Christians didn't either didn't either think about it or just weren't aware of it. Um, and so back in 2010, as, as I showed you, I started the Theopologetics podcast, and the very first episode was on the topic of resurrection for precisely that reason. It concerned me that so many of my Christians weren't aware of or didn't think about the, their future eternity in a resurrected, glorified physical body. So um, that was why I started the apologetics in the first place. Um, now fast forward to today, and uh, a, a few months ago, I was approached by somebody that wanted to arrange a debate between me and somebody who denies that the Bible teaches there will be a um, physical resurrection of the dead. Um, to give you a little bit of background, I am what's called a preterist, and, and you'll hear this mentioned here in a few minutes, but what that means is that I believe most biblical prophecies have been fulfilled in our past, including several prophecies that most other Christians think await fulfillment in our future. Um, so, for example, the Mark of the Beast, 666, you know, the, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. These are things a lot of Christians think await fulfillment in our future, but I think they await fulfillment in our past. I think the Bible teaches that much. But there are some exceptions, namely, and most especially, the resurrection of the dead. I don't think that was fulfilled in our past. I think it awaits fulfillment in our future. 
Well, over the past 30 years, approximately, um, a small but very vocal and growing number of um, professing Christians uh, have sort of co-opted the term preterism and used it to describe their own view. This group of people that I'm talking about believe not just that some or even most biblical prophecies were fulfilled in our past, they think that all biblical prophecy was fulfilled in our past. So not only do they not believe that there will be a future resurrection from the dead, they believe that what the Bible talks about as the general resurrection is something that happened in our distant past, in, in and around 70 AD, um, when the Roman armies sieged Jerusalem and destroyed the Jerusalem temple there. Um, they sometimes call themselves full preterists or consistent preterists um, to just and, and, and they've sort of forced a lot of people to start calling my view partial preterism or inconsistent preterism or, or you know various other things or just call us futurists um, and we'll talk about that here in a minute um, so the debate that somebody approached me to set up was going to be a debate between uh, me and a hyper-preterist, and, and, and you'll see why I call them hyper-preterists, this group of people I'm talking about. I won't call them full preterists or consistent preterists. I call them hyper-preterists, and you'll see why in a minute. Um, so that debate is going to be tomorrow, and we're going to be debating whether or not there's going to be a future physical resurrection of the dead. Now, I've prepared a slide deck uh, that I'm going to use to present a 20-minute opening statement in my debate tomorrow. My opponent also has, oh, you know what, I, I meant to show this a while ago. Um, this is uh, a graphic, a, a promo graphic that talks about the debate that's coming up tomorrow. It's going to be host. It's going to be at 7:30 Eastern PM, 4:30 uh, my time Pacific, and it's going to be at Eli Ayala's YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash/revealedapologetics. Eli Ayala is a, a friend of mine and, and a fellow Reformed apologist, um, and he'll be hosting and moderating the debate at that YouTube channel. Uh, my opponent will be Michael Miano. He is styled here in the promo graphic as a full preterist. I will be calling him a hyper-preterist for reasons I'll explain in a moment. And then, of course, I'm affirming the question, and I'm on the left, and I'm styled as a historic preterist, for which reason I will uh, explain in a moment. Okay, so... Um, I've got a slide deck prepared, and uh, uh, what, what should be a 20-minute opening presentation I'm going to deliver based on it tomorrow in that debate. Um, recently, Michael Miano, my opponent, uh, let me sit in on a Zoom chat in which he read his 20-minute opening presentation. And so I'm trying to do something, uh, sort of return the favor a little bit by, by what I'm about to do. I'm going to now deliver um, uh, the... 20 minute presentation that I'm going to give in my debate tomorrow. So if you're going to tune into the debate tomorrow, um, you don't necessarily need to stick around now because after this, after I present it here in a moment, I'm, we're going to end the stream. Um, but if you would like to tune in anyway and maybe offer me some advice that I might be able to incorporate between now and the debate tomorrow, then please do. I would welcome your um, your input and you can see there are a few different ways to get a hold of me uh, on the bar along the bottom right of your screen. Uh, easiest is to email me, but you can also send me a message on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever. But I would welcome your, your feedback and your advice. And, and hopefully, I know that this is less than 24 hours for my opponent to um, consider what I'm about to present. Um, but hopefully that's enough time for him to get a gist of uh, what he can expect in the debate tomorrow. Now, last thing I'll say before I start presenting my slides, I have not practiced 
this much. I've only made sure that it's about the 20 minutes uh, that I will have. So I might be stumbling over my words a little bit and I might come in at a little bit uh, too far under or over 20 minutes. Um, but I'll be a little more polished for the debate tomorrow, I, I promise you. Um, but anyway, with, with all that ado, I guess I will jump in and, and start going through this um, presentation. I'm not going to time myself during it. Uh, I'm just going to see after the stream is over how long it took me to deliver and then adjust as necessary. But as you can see, I will be affirming that there will be a future physical resurrection of the dead. So let's go ahead and begin with uh, begin the presentation that I'll be delivering. I'll, I'll start by issuing a very quick word of thanks to my opponent and to the person who helped arrange that. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. Let me. I just for, I just realized I forgot to say something. This is really important. I have a few people I need to thank for um, helping me to get this show started up again. Firstly, the theme music that you heard in the intro video um, is based on a theme that accompanied my original podcast, and that theme music was put together by friend and fellow Rethinking Hell contributor Glenn Peebles. Um, he put together a really cool electric heavy heavy metal kind of uh, riff that was the opening music for almost every single one of my 127 episodes of the podcast. Um, he, uh, I wanted to do something that was sort of, that sort of provided some continuity with that theme music, but also started something new. And so a friend of mine named Isaiah Burridge, who has his own podcast that you should check out called It Depends on uh, How You Look at It, um, and he recently had me as a guest on his show to talk about the nature of the intermediate state. Uh, Isaiah Burridge, uh, with a little bit of um, guidance from me, was able to come up with the theme music that you just heard that accompanied the intro video at the beginning of this feed. Um, obviously, it's not electric and, and, and heavy. It, it's um, acoustic and uh, more a cappella, um, which is probably good because I'll probably reach a little bit more of a larger audience this way um, who would otherwise be turned off by the, by the electric heavy metal riffs. So thanks to I, Isaiah for taking Glenn's original music and, and adapting it for the new show. And thanks also to um, Glenn for coming up with the music originally. And then thirdly and finally, I, I, I have to thank uh, Peter Grice, my friend and fellow contributor at Rethinking Hell who uh, put together the, the video teaser that you might have seen a few weeks ago before you came here for this episode today, uh, and also the intro video that you saw a little bit ago and will and the outro video that you'll see shortly. So I owe a huge, uh, a huge deal of thanks to all three of those people. Again, Glenn Peoples, Isaiah Burridge, Peter Grice, thank you guys so much for helping to make this possible. Um, and uh, I would encourage everybody to check out Glenn Peoples' website, rightreason.com, I believe it is. Just search for Glenn Peoples' Right Reason, you'll find it. Um, also check out Isaiah Burridge's podcast. It depends on how you look at it. And then, you know, at Rethinking Hell, you'll find a lot of material from uh, Peter Grice as well. So thank you guys. And now I'll return to what I said I was going to do, which is uh, my opening presentation. And by the way, thanks in the, to uh, the Flaming Sword podcast in the chat for uh, giving me a little bit of advice for my debate. I appreciate that. I know that he's going to be pressing me on the time statements. And um, as a preterist myself, I should be able to um, discuss those in a way that probably a lot of other Christians would not. Um, but we'll, we'll see. 
Okay, so I'll begin by issuing a very quick 10 seconds or so of thanks to my opponent and to the person who helped arrange the debate and to Eli for hosting and moderating it. And then I'll say I've got a lot of material to cover, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. And I want to begin with some introductory material um, to, help, to help explain the terminology differences between me and my opponent and also explain why I think my opponent's view isn't just a, a, a different view that a Christian can legitimately hold, but is in fact heresy. Uh, as I understand it to be. I am simply a preterist by the historic definition of the word. As I explained a little bit ago, preterism is the view that several end times prophecies were fulfilled in and around 70 AD, uh, including the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation 6, the number of the beast, and a number of other things, including passages from uh, Matthew 24 and others. But some end time prophecies are, not, uh, are yet to be fulfilled in our future, most especially the second advent of Christ and the general resurrection of the dead. Now this view, preterism, is definitely not futurism, and it's not really partial preterism. And the reason is because futurism and preterism were two among several other competing theories of apocalyptic interpretation historically. Um, and the preterism that competed with futurism uh, as, as far back as 1848 and earlier applied all but one or two chapters at the, at the end of the book of Revelation to events long ago past. So in the day and age where preterists, futurists, and other uh, people of apocalyptic interpretation were competing with one another, preterism just was the view that I have right now, which is that most biblical prophecies have been fulfilled in our past, but there remain some to be fulfilled in our future. By contrast, my opponent holds to what I believe is uh, should be called hyper-preterism, uh, and I'll explain why in a moment. In his view, all end times prophecies were fulfilled in and around 70 AD, including the second coming of Christ and the general resurrection of the dead. In fact, all biblical prophecies have been fulfilled in our past. Now, why do I think this should be called hyper-preterism? It's because, as Kenneth Gentry explains, preterists like me and Kenneth Gentry gladly accept the basic doctrines of universal Christian theology, but hyperpreterists do not. Hyperpreterism is to preterism what hypercalvinism is to Calvinism. It is a theological error created by pressing legitimate concerns too far. Now, indeed, there's a variety of theological errors within hyperpreterism, but perhaps its worst is its denial of the physical resurrection of the dead, because the physical resurrection of the dead has been definitional of Christianity since the earliest years of the church. In Irenaeus's Against Heresies, he issues an early rule of faith that says the church has received the faith in the beloved Christ Jesus and is appearing to raise up all flesh of all mankind. The Apostles' Creed, which goes back to just a little bit after that statement from Irenaeus, uh, has Christians confess, I believe in the resurrection of the flesh. In fact, the denial of the resurrection of the flesh was deemed heresy by the early church. Uh, Tertullian, in his On the Resurrection, said it would be better for the heretic to acknowledge the resurrection of the flesh. He will not be a Christian who shall deny this doctrine. But in fact, it's scripture itself that deems hyperpreterism heresy. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul writes of people whose teaching will spread like gangrene. Their names are Hymenaeus and Philetus, and they've departed from the truth, saying the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of some. If I'm right, and I'll demonstrate here in a moment that I am right, then my opponent, by saying the resurrection has already taken place, is ruining people's faiths and spreading gangrene. The word gangrene translates the Greek, the Greek gangrena, which refers to a disease that can include a cancerous spread of ulcers, which eats away the flesh and bones. It's vile. It's terrible. Um, and that's why I say that my opponent's view is not just a legitimate view that we can disagree about, uh, disagree about but it is outright heresy condemned not only by the early church, but by scripture itself. 
itself. And that's why I call it hyperpederism. And I just refer to my view the way that it has been re referred to in history, simply as preterism. All right, now let me begin my case proper. And what I want to do is begin with the interrelated concepts of human life and redemption or salvation. And in this portion of my presentation, I'm going to argue firstly that to be a living human being is to be physically embodied and breathing the life-giving breath of God. Secondly, I'll argue that salvation guarantees believers will overcome death and live embodied forever. So I begin my case at Genesis 2-7, where Yahweh forms the man of dust from the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man becomes a living creature. The phrase living creature is nefesh chaya, and it's a phrase that's used to describe creatures that swim around in the ocean, creatures that walk around on earth, and even birds in Genesis 1-20 and 24. Um, and in 2.19. And what makes all of these creatures, including humans, nefesh kaya, or living creatures, is that they breathe the breath of life. Which is why in Genesis 6.17 and 7.22, the, the, in the flood narrative, all flesh in whose nostrils the breath of life uh, was, died. Um, in fact, the scripture itself says in passages like Job 34 and Psalm 104 that if God would to, were to gather his spirit and breath back to himself, then the flesh that once had that breath of life would perish and return to the dust. But if God gives that breath of life back, as we see in Ezekiel 37 and in Revelation 11, um, then the flesh, the, the person that had formerly died and had the breath of life leave him, uh, when that breath of life returns, uh, the body comes back to life. The person comes back to life. So we can see consistently that the Bible says to be a living human being is to be physically embodied and breathing the life-giving breath of God. With that in mind, consider how salvation is cashed out in terms of eternal life in the New Testament. In John 3.16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world, or maybe John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That word uh, translated perish, apollomy, when it's used in the Greek middle voice, as it's used here, means to physically die. In fact, in the very immediately preceding verses, he com Jesus compares himself to the bronze serpent that Moses held up in the wilderness, and which people who had been bitten by otherwise fatally venomous snakes would look at that uh, staff and survive and literally survive death by snake bite. So Jesus's belief in Jesus is literally a matter of life and death. This goes back, in fact, this theme of salvation being uh, the, the returned embodied life and living forever is something that spans cover to cover in scripture. In the opening chapters of Genesis, in Genesis 3, God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden so that they cannot take from the tree of life and eat and thereby live forever. And of course, they eventually die. So their, the, the revocation of their access to the tree of life guarantees their eventual physical death. But the tree of life reappears at the other end of scripture, in Revelation 22, where only the saved have access to its fruit, symbolizing that the saved and the saved alone will live embodied forever. Uh, we see this predicted in texts like Old Testament texts like Isaiah 25, 7 to, 8, 7 to 8. Yahweh is promised to swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The phrase translated all nations is kol uh, hagoyim, and, and is literally all the Gentiles. And the word translated death and its root uh, are used elsewhere all throughout Isaiah to refer to physical death. So here, God is promising he will one day swallow up physical death, the death that covers over all the nations, all the Gentiles, uh, forever. 
this in the in one Septuagint Greek translation of this passage, the Greek says death has been swallowed up in victory, which Paul quotes in his passage on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, saying when the dead are raised and made immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. Uh, in, in earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul clarifies what that means. He says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The Greek word translated destroyed, katargeo, means to cause, to cease, to happen. And the Greek word thanatos, and the root from which it comes, which is thanesko, is used all throughout 1 Corinthians to refer to ordinary physical death, like the death that Christ died in our behalf. Uh, it's not only Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 who quotes from Isaiah 25. Uh, the, uh, the text goes on to say that God will wipe away tears from all faces, which you might recognize from Revelation. So John quotes it from it as well in Revelation 21.4, where he says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Hathanatos uk estai eti. And again, thanatos and its cognates are used all throughout the book of Revelation to refer to ordinary physical death. So physical death one day will, no, will be no more contrary to my opponent's view. Paul says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Once again, thanatos and, its, uh, and, and the root thanesco, words from that root, are used throughout the book of Romans to refer to ordinary physical death, leading up to Romans 6.23 and immediately thereafter, where a spouse whose uh, husband dies is then free to remarry. So uh, the wages of sin is physical death. But the free gift of God is living forever in Christ Jesus. Which is why Jesus says in John 6, 48 to 51, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So as we've seen, salvation guarantees believers will overcome death and live embodied forever. Now let me shift to the related topics of Christ and resurrection. And here I want to argue three things. Firstly, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead physically, and those united to him will rise as he did. Second, resurrection just is the rising again of the physical body. And third, believers will rise bodily and immortal. So regarding, regarding Jesus' resurrection from the dead, I want to begin in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, where Paul says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, was buried, and was raised on the third day. This Greek word, egero, translated raised, is used all throughout the New Testament consistently to refer to Christ's third day resurrection, the resurrection that he, uh, his coming back to life that he experienced when he came up out of the tomb on the third day. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15.20 to say that if in fact, or that in fact Christ has been raised, there's that word agero again, from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The word first fruits, the Greek word there refers to the first of a set, the first of a crop that would be given, uh, that would guarantee a future um, uh, productive harvest. Uh, it means the first of a set. Um, and this is consistent with what is said in Acts 26, 23, Christ is the first to rise from the dead. And Romans 6, 5 to 9, where Paul says, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then he goes on to say, Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Now, critically, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he re was raised in a physical body. And so when the women arrive at his tomb, they, uh, or when they find him after, his to after, after they find his tomb empty, they take hold of his feet and worship him. In John 20, he tells Doubting Thomas, put your finger here and your hand into my side. So he has a tangible body that can be felt and touched. 
And he's particularly explicit in Luke 24, where he says, um, where his disciples think that they're seeing a spirit and they're startled, but he reassures them saying he's not a spirit because a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So clearly Jesus rose in a physical body and clearly the, the, the several texts that we've looked at say that believers will die with, or be raised with the same kind of body Jesus was. So it follows that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead physically and those united to him will rise as he did. Secondly, um, let's turn to the, what resurrection is. Um, if we look at what Paul says at, uh, at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, he says that God has given assurance by raising Christ from the dead. Here the Greek word is anistemi, and it, comes, it means to stand up. That's literally what it means. And, and it, the, the Luke records that when he talks about the resurrection of Christ, many people who heard him uh, heard of the resurrection. Here the Greek word is anastasis, same meaning, stand up, just the noun form. And, and they mock him for it. They mock him for resurrection. Now, why is that? Well, it's because um, in the play by Aeschylus called Eumenides, Apollo is depicted at the inauguration of the Areopagus. Areopagus means hill of Ares. And Apollo says at the inauguration of Areopagus, when the dust has drawn up the blood of a man, once he is dead, there is no return to life. There's that Greek word anastasis that Paul used on the Areopagus. So you can see from its very inception, the Areopagus was a place where people would not believe that the dead could be raised. It's not just Eumenides. It's also Aeschylus' play Agamemnon, um, that, in which it said, I know no way to bring the dead back to life. Here it's not anastasis, it's anistemi, the verb form. But it's also Homer's Iliad, uh, you cannot raise from the dead, there's anistemi again, and that word is also used in Sophocles' Electra, never by weeping nor by prayer will you resurrect your father from the pool of Hades, which receives all men. These, these Greek philosophers and, and poets in history were denying that physical bodies of people that had died could come back to life one day. They had no problem with the idea of a national restoration or some sort of corporate restoration of people. What they had a problem with, indeed what they thought was absolutely absurd was the notion that a dead body could come back to physical life. Not so the Jews. You see, in my, you're going to hear from my opponent, uh, he's going to try and argue what is the uh, Jewish view that reflected in the scriptures versus a sort of Western view that we are imposing on the text. But in fact, he's got that dynamic exactly the opposite. It was the Greeks who said the dead couldn't be raised. The Jews uh, were confident that there would one day be a physical resurrection from the dead. And the reason, is, as indicated by Hebrews 11.1, 1, is that they had received people back by resurrection in the past. Here, the author of Hebrews is referring to passages in 1 Kings and 2 Kings in which children are literally brought back to life for their mothers. Uh, he goes on, the author of Hebrews does, to say that other people were tortured, not accepting release, so they might gain a better resurrection. Here he's referring to such texts as Second Maccabees, um, in which these brothers all submit themselves to torture and death, being assured, because of their belief in Judaism, that one day God would give them their life and breath and even tongue and hands back. So they believed in an embodied, a physical resurrection from the dead and were willing to go to their deaths because they, pro they were um, assured of that reality. And it's not just Maccabees that indicates the Jews believe in physical resurrection. It's also in 1 Enoch 51, 
It's in the Apocalypse of Moses, otherwise known as the Life of Adam and Eve in Greek. Uh, it's in. It's all throughout the Talmud, both the Babylonian Talmud, from which you can see two quotes here, as well as the Jerusalem Talmud, which you can see in the bottom here. So all throughout the the Jewish literature, the um, uh, the Second Maccabees, First Enoch, the Greek Apocalypse of of Moses, and the Talmud, both Babylonian and Jerusalem, resurrection is the return of dead bodies back to physical life. That's just what resurrection is in the Jewish mind. So as we've seen, resurrection just is the rising again of the physical body. Now let's turn, why did the Jews believe that there would one day, uh, that God would one day resurrect the dead? This is a question they ask in the Talmud. Um, here they ask, how do we know that the Holy One, blessed be he, will resurrect the dead? Well, they answer in the Talmud, it's proved from the Torah or law, from the prophets and from the writings. One example of a writing from a text from the prophets that they thought substantiated belief in the physical resurrection of the dead was this text, which follows the chapter after the one I looked at from earlier, which was Isaiah 25. This is Isaiah 26, verses 19 and 21. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust awake, etc., etc., the earth will no more cover its slain. All right. Um, and it's not just Isaiah. We also see in the Talmud that they thought proof derived from the writings, what they categorize as the writings, which includes Daniel 12, 2. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, etc., etc. So we know that the Jews thought that Isaiah 25, 26 and Daniel 12 were, um, were two among other texts that assured the Jewish people that one day God would raise the dead bodily. Um, and uh, it's worth noting that in the Greek Septuagint translation of these two texts is that language of resurrection we've already been looking at, agero, anistemi, uh, and, and zoane ionion, that's eternal life, the phrase that's used in the New Testament. So now when we see Paul uh, in Acts chapter 24 on trial for his beliefs say that he believes everything laid down by the law and the prophets that there will be a resurrection, we know exactly what kinds of texts he would have had in mind based on how the Jewish people were talking about proof of resurrection uh, in such texts as the Talmud. And by the way, that Greek word anastasis where he says there will be a resurrection, that word has been used leading up to this point in the book of Acts consistently to refer to Christ's bodily physical resurrection from the dead. Now, turning to 1 Corinthians 15, let, let's talk about what nature, what the nature will be of this resurrection body. Beginning in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 15 and going all the way down through the chapter, he keeps using the language of agato, raised, and resurrection, anastasis, to refer to um, back and forth. He goes back and forth between Christ's third day bodily physical resurrection from the tomb and the believer's resurrection that, that, uh, of those who are united to Christ. And then he gets in verse 35, he says, uh, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Well, he answers by saying, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. And God gives it a body as he has chosen and each kind of seed its own body. A um, couple of things worth noting here. First of all, He's just doing the same thing that was done by other Jews as recorded in the Talmud, using the analogy of a seed planted into the ground and then coming up from the ground glorious as an analogy for, the, for um, what the nature of the resurrection body will be. And again, they're talking about bodies coming back, physical bodies coming up out of the ground. Paul isn't doing something particularly new here. Um, but he goes on to say that the, the, that which is sown, hospedes, that's the subject of this series of verses in, in a series of contrasting clauses in verses 42 to 44. What is sown is perishable. 
but what and and it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, raised in glory, and so forth. Uh, you can see you can see that in this table here. On the left is what the subject. Uh, it refers to the sowing of the subject, and on the right is the raising of the subject. And throughout the subject that is sown is the natural body, uh, the, the 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 physical body that goes in the ground when it dies. So it's that physical body that will be raised, albeit transformed, changed. Now, some people, when they look at this contrast between the natural body um, that it's with which it's sown, or as which it's sown, versus a spiritual body uh, in which it's raised, the the contrast sometimes strikes people as an indication between, say, material and non-material or immaterial. And as support for this notion, some people will offer that in verse uh, 50, Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But this is a mistake and a failure to understand the language as Paul is using it. Firstly, the contrast between natural and spiritual is a contrast that Paul had already used earlier in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, where he's describing two equally physical entities, the unbeliever who's the natural person and the believer who's a spiritual person. And flesh and blood is just a euphemism or, a, or a, it's a merism referring to individual parts of a human in place of the whole person. And, and it's a phrase that is used in the New Testament and in intertestamental literature to refer to mortal human beings. So, for example, Ben Sirah in, in Sirach says, uh, some fall, some grow, so is the generation of flesh and blood. One comes to an end, another is born. So the natural spiritual distinction and, and this concept of flesh and blood not inheriting the kingdom of God has nothing to do with material versus immaterial. What it has to do with is mortal versus immortal. And that's why in his parallelism, Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. It's, it's, it's a parallelism. The two mean essentially the same thing. Uh, and he goes on to say this mortal body must put on immortality. Okay, so the contrast is not between material and immaterial, it's between mortal and immortal. Now, again, look at what we've seen in 1 Corinthians 15 from earlier. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And as Paul also says in Romans 6, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his, and that he, Christ, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. So that is consistent with everything that we just looked at in 1 Corinthians 15, that believers are going to rise immortal in physical immortal bodies, which is why Jesus says to the Sadducees in Luke 20, 35 and 36, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God. So from all of this, we can see that believers will rise bodily and immortal. So let me just uh, sum up what I've argued thus far. Um, firstly, to be a living human being is to be physically embodied and breathing the life-giving breath of God. Secondly, salvation guarantees believers will overcome death and live embodied forever. Thirdly, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead physically and those united to him will rise as he did. Fourthly, resurrection just is the rising again of the physical body. And fifthly, believers will rise bodily and immortal. And that's it. So that is the a first run through of the debate, the opening presentation I'll be giving tomorrow. I think I went a little bit over 20 minutes, but I'll polish it up and speak a little bit more um, eloquently, hopefully, uh, in the actual debate.
But if you uh, have some thoughts and, and some feedback you'd like to give me, please do consider uh, send, going to facebook.com slash the apologetics. You can see it there in the uh, bottom right hand corner of your screen and sending me a message with your feedback or shoot me an email at the apologetics at hotmail.com. I'd love to try and incorporate your feedback if I've got time before the debate tomorrow. But I'd very much love to know what you think. To me, those five lines of evidence that I presented um, uh, converge to make it extremely clear and simply undeniable that the biblical prof, uh, promise for God followers, for believers in Christ, is indeed physical resurrection from the dead uh, unto immortality and glory. And I'm really excited about that, and um, it really grieves me to see people give up on that biblical hope that the Bible and the early church saw as foundational to Christianity. Um, and it's especially concerning to me when it's not just overlooked, like by many Christians, but actively argued against, like by the likes of the heretic that I'm going to be debating tomorrow. So if you, um, now I have heard, as I said, an early portion, an early draft of my opponent's opening presentation, and I don't, I don't think that he has any real meaning, meaningful um, challenge to what I presented here, but I will, I may be surprised somewhat, may perhaps you will as well, but please do consider tuning in tomorrow to the debate, and I'll share it with you one more time here, just so you can uh, take note of it if you haven't already. You'll be able to go to youtube.com slash revealed apologetics. Uh, the debate will start at 7.30 Eastern, 4.30 Pacific, um, and uh, I'll look forward to... Oh, and, and there will be a period of time at the end of the debate um, in which we will be fielding audience Q&A. So if you've got some questions that you'd like to pose to either me or to my hyperpreterist opponent, um, you'll be able to do so in the debate, and we'll be able to field those questions live uh, during, uh, during it. So I hope that you'll tune into that, and I hope that um, if you choose not to tune into the debate tomorrow, hopefully this was nevertheless a good introduction to who I am, to what the apologetics is, and to um, the importance and biblical foundation of the, the doctrine of physical resurrection from the dead. Um, we who believe in Christ will one day rise immortal and glorious because we are united to the one who already rose immortal and glorious. And praise be to God, um, death doesn't have to be the end of the story for us. Um, we, as human beings, universally fear death. Some people pretend they don't, but we do, especially when we um, are not busy and we're not partying, we're not drunk, we're not stoned or whatever. We're, we're, in our, we're by ourselves, we don't have company, and we're left to the darkness and to our, lone, our, our lonesome selves to ponder our approaching demise. We do fear it, um, and we long for immortality and everlasting life, which is why people pour so many millions of dollars into transhumanist efforts to achieve immortality through technology. If that's you, if like I did when I still wasn't a Christian, you fear death because you um, think that's going to be the end of your story and nothing will ever happen again after that, that doesn't have to be the end of your story. Life and immortality is, is to be found through faith in Jesus Christ. And all you have to be willing to do is to acknowledge that you are deserving of death uh, and that you can't achieve the kind of righteousness that, is, that merits everlasting life um, because you're sinful and you sin every day, just like I do even to this day. Um, if you acknowledge that and embrace Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross in, on behalf of in the place of those who deserve death and will turn, to, uh, turn in faith to him, if you will do that, then death doesn't have to be the end of your story. You can rise one day from the dead in perfect bodies that are no longer subject to pain, disease, and aging. 
uh, you'll rise immortal, you'll raise glorious. Uh, and, and just think of some of the cool, this is speculation now, but consider that right now, um, what prevents us from fully exploring the deepest depths of the ocean or the distant reaches of the cosmos? It's mortality and it's technology. We're mortal and we can't live long enough to get to any distant parts of the universe and we too easily die at the depths of, of the deepest parts of the ocean. And technology at any given generation still has a long way to go before we can explore the distant reaches of the cosmos and so forth. But when we rise from the dead immortal and glorious, and when we and if we continue to be able to develop technology but without sin, so we're doing it wisely and safely and, and healthfully and in and to the glory of God, then imagine you'll be able to live long enough to do whatever you want to explore the deepest depths of the ocean, the distant reaches of the cosmos. That's really exciting to me. Now, granted, it's speculation. But even if we don't get to go do those things, death does not have to be the end of the story. And that's what I want to leave you with today if you're not already a follower of Jesus Christ. Repent from your sin and accept the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And you can rise one day glorious and immortal, notwithstanding the heresy of the person I'm going to be debating tomorrow. So I hope you've enjoyed this inaugural episode of the Resurrected The Apologetics show. Again, if you want to check out the archive of podcast episodes, you can go to theapologetics.com or you can just search for The Apologetics in YouTube or uh, uh, iTunes. Um, but whether you choose to go back and check those episodes out or not, I hope that you'll come back in two weeks at this time, 6 p.m. Pacific, uh, for the next episode of The Apologetics. And um, thanks for joining me today. I look forward to seeing you next time. been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...